0: Chapter 4 of Against the Grain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Martin Giessen. Against the Grain by Joris Carl Wismans. Translated by John Howard. Chapter 4 A portion of the shelves which lined the walls of his orange and blue study was devoted exclusively to those Latin works assigned to the generic period of the Decadence, by those whose minds have absorbed the deplorable teachings of the Sorbonne. The Latin written in that era which professors still persist in calling the Great Age, hardly stimulated des esseintes with its carefully premeditated style its sameness its stripping of supple syntax its poverty of colour and nuance this language pruned of all the rugged and often rich expressions of the preceding ages was confined to the enunciation of the majestic banalities the empty commonplaces tiresomely reiterated by the rhetoricians and poets, but it betrayed such a lack of curiosity and such a humdrum tediousness, such a drabness, feebleness, and jaded solemnity, that to find its equal it was necessary in linguistic studies to go to the French style of the period of Louis XIV the gentle virgil whom instructors call the mantuan swan perhaps because he was not born in that city he considered one of the most terrible pedants ever produced by antiquity des esseintes was exasperated by his immaculate and bedizened shepherds his orpheus whom he compares to a weeping nightingale his aristeus who simpers about bees his aeneas that weak-willed irresolute person who walks with wooden gestures through the length of the poem des esseintes would gladly have accepted the tedious nonsense which those marionettes exchange with each other off stage or even the poet's impudent borrowings from Homer, Theocritus, Ennius, and Lucretius, the plain theft revealed to us by Macrobius of the second song of the Aeneid, copied almost word for word from one of Pisander's poems, in fine, all the unutterable emptiness of this heap of verses the thing he could not forgive however and which infuriated him most was the workmanship of the hexameters beating like empty tin cans and extending their syllabic quantities measured according to the unchanging rule of a pedantic and dull prosody he disliked the texture of those stiff verses in their official garb, their abject reverence for grammar, their mechanical division by imperturbable caesuras, always plugged at the end in the same way by the impact of a dactyl against a spondy. Borrowed from the perfected forge of Catullus, this unvarying versification, lacking imagination, lacking pity, padded with useless words and refuse with pegs of identical and anticipated assonances this ceaseless wretchedness of homeric epithet which designates nothing whatever and permits nothing to be seen all this impoverished vocabulary of muffled lifeless tones bored him beyond measure It is no more than just to add that if his admiration for Virgil was quite restrained, and his attraction for Ovid's lucid outpourings even more circumspect, there was no limit to his disgust at the elephantine graces of Horace at the prattle of this hopeless lout who smirkingly utters the broad crude jests of an old clown neither was he pleased in prose with the verbosities the redundant metaphors the ludicrous digressions of cicero there was nothing to beguile him in the boasting of his apostrophes in the flow of his patriotic nonsense in the emphasis of his harangues in the ponderousness of his style fleshy but ropey and lacking in marrow and bone in the insupportable dross of his long adverbs with which he introduces phrases in the unalterable formula of his adipose periods badly sewed together with the thread of conjunctions and finally in his wearisome habits of tautology nor was his enthusiasm wakened for caesar celebrated for his laconic style here on the contrary was disclosed a surprising aridity a sterility of recollection an incredibly undue constipation he found pasture neither among them nor among those writers who are peculiarly the delight of the spuriously literate Sallust, who is less colourless than the others sentimental and pompous titus livius turgid and lurid seneca watery and larval suetonius tacitus who in his studied conciseness is the keenest most wiry and muscular of them all in poetry he was untouched by Juvenal, despite some rough-shod verses, and by Perseus, despite his mysterious insinuations. In neglecting Tibullus and Propertius, Quintilian and the Plinys, Statius, Martial, even Terence and Plautus whose jargon full of neologisms, compound words and diminutives could please him, but whose low comedy and gross humour he loathed. Des Esseintes only began to be interested in the Latin language, with Lucan. Here it was liberated, already more expressive and less dull. This careful armour, these verses, plaited with enamel and studded with jewels, captivated him. But the exclusive preoccupation with form, the sonorities of tone, the clangour of metals, did not entirely conceal from him the emptiness of the thought, the turgidity of those blisters which emboss the skin of the Farsalia. Petronius was the author whom he truly loved, and who caused him forever to abandon the sonorous ingenuities of Lucan, for he was a keen observer, a delicate analyst, a marvellous painter. Tranquilly, without prejudice or hate, he described Rome's daily life. Recounting the customs of his epoch in the sprightly little chapters of the Satyricon. Observing the facts of life, stating them in clear, definite form, he revealed the petty existence of the people, their happenings, their bestialities, their passions. One glimpses the inspector of furnished lodgings who has inquired after the newly arrived travellers bawdy houses where men prowl around nude women while through the half-open doors of the rooms couples can be seen in dalliance the society of the time in villas of an insolent luxury a revel of richness and magnificence or in the poor quarters with their rumpled bug-written folding beds impure sharpers like ascylte and eumolpe in search of a rich windfall old incubi with tucked-up dresses and plastered cheeks of white lead and red acacia plump curled depraved little girls of sixteen women who are the prey of hysterical attacks hunters of heritages offering their sons and daughters to debauched testators. All pass across the pages. They debate in the streets, rub elbows in the baths, beat each other unmercifully as in a pantomime. And all this recounted in a style of strange freshness and precise colour, drawing from all dialects, borrowing expressions from all the languages that were drifting into Rome, extending all the limits, removing all the handicaps of the so-called Great Age. He made each person speak his own idiom, the uneducated freedmen, the vulgar Latin argo of the streets, the strangers their barbarous patois the corrupt speech of the African, Syrian, and Greek, imbecile pedants, like the Agamemnon of the book, a rhetoric of artificial words. These people are depicted with swift strokes, wallowing around tables, exchanging stupid drunken speech, uttering senile maxims and inept proverbs. This realistic novel, this slice of Roman life, without any preoccupation, whatever one may say of it, with reform and satire, without the need of any studied end or of morality. This story without intrigue or action, portraying the adventures of evil persons analyzing with a calm finesse the joys and sorrows of these lovers and couples depicting life in a splendidly wrought language without surrendering himself to any commentary without approving or cursing the acts and thoughts of his characters the vices of a decrepit civilization of an empire that cracks struck des In the keenness of the observation, in the firmness of the method, he found singular comparisons, curious analogies, with the few modern French novels he could endure. Certainly he bitterly regretted the Eustion and the Albutiae, those two works by Petronius mentioned by Planciades Fulgentius, which are forever lost. But the bibliophile in him consoled the student, when he touched with worshipful hands the superb edition of the satyricon which he possessed, the octavo bearing the date 1585, and the name of J. Dowser of Leiden. Leaving Petronius, his Latin collection entered into the second century of the Christian era passed over fronto, the declaimer, with his antiquated terms, skipped the attic nights of Aulus Gellius, his disciple and friend, a clever, ferreting mind, but a writer entangled in a glutinous vase, and halted at Apuleius, of whose works he owned the first edition printed at Rome in 1469 this african delighted him the latin language was at its richest in the metamorphoses it contained ooze and rubbish-strewn water rushing from all the provinces and the refuse mingled and was confused in a bizarre exotic almost new colour mannerisms new details of latin society found themselves shaped into neologisms specially created for the needs of conversation in a roman corner of africa he was amused by the southern exuberance and joviality of a doubtlessly corpulent man he seemed a salacious gay crony compared with the christian apologists who lived in the same century the soporific Minucius felix a pseudo-classicist pouring forth the still thick emulsions of cicero into his octavius nay even tertullian whom he perhaps preserved for his Aldine edition more than for the work itself although he was sufficiently versed in theology the disputes of the montanists against the catholic church the polemics against the gnostics left him cold despite tertullian's curious concise style full of ambiguous terms resting on participles clashing with oppositions bristling with puns and witticisms dappled with vocables culled from the juridical science and the language of the fathers of the greek church he now hardly ever opened the apologetica and the treatise on patience at the most he read several pages of the deculta where Tertullian counsels women not to bedeck themselves with jewels and precious stuffs, forbidding them the use of cosmetics, because these attempt to correct and improve nature. These ideas, diametrically opposed to his own, made him smile. Then the role played by Tertullian in his Carthage bishopric, Seemed to him suggestive in pleasant reveries. More even than his works did the man attract him. He had, in fact, lived in stormy times agitated by frightful disorders under Caracalla, under Macrinus, under the astonishing high priest of Emesa, Elagabalus and he tranquilly prepared his sermons, his dogmatic writings, his pleadings, his homilies, while the Roman Empire shook on its foundations, while the follies of Asia, while the audiers of paganism were full to the brim. With the utmost sang-froid he recommended carnal abstinence, frugality in food, sobriety in dress. While walking in silver powder and golden sand, a tiara on his head, his garb figured with precious stones, Elagabalus worked amid his eunuchs at womanish labor, calling himself the Empress, and changing every night his Emperor, whom he preferably chose among barbers, scullions, and circus drivers this antithesis delighted him then the latin language arrived at its supreme maturity under petronius commenced to decay the christian literature replaced it bringing new words with new ideas unemployed constructions strange verbs adjectives with subtle meanings abstract words until then rare in the roman language and whose usage tertullian had been one of the first to adopt but there was no attraction in this dissolution continued after tertullian's death by his pupil st cyprian by arnobius and by lactantius there was something lacking it made clumsy returns to ciceronian magniloquence but had not yet acquired that special flavour which in the fourth century, and particularly during the centuries following, the odour of Christianity would give the pagan tongue, decomposed like old venison, crumbling at the same time that old world civilization collapsed, and the empires, putrefied by the sunnies of the centuries, succumbed to the thrusts of the barbarians only one christian poet commodianus represented the third century in his library the carmen apologeticum written in two five nine is a collection of instructions twisted into acrostics in popular hexameters with caesuras introduced according to the heroic verse style composed without regard to quantity or hiatus and often accompanied by such rhymes as the church latin would later supply in such abundance these sombre tortuous gamey verses crammed with terms of ordinary speech with words diverted from their primitive meaning claimed and interested him even more than the soft and already green style of the historians Amianus marcellinus and aurelius victorus simarchus the letter-writer and macrobius the grammarian and compiler them he even preferred to the genuinely scanned lines the spotted and superb language of claudian rutilius and ausonius they were then the masters of art they filled the dying empire with their cries the christian ausonius with his cento nuptialis and his exuberant embellished Mosella, rutilius with his hymns to the glory of rome his anathemas against the jews and the monks his journey from Italy into Gaul, and the impressions recorded along the way, the intervals of landscape reflected in the water, the mirage of vapours, and the movement of mists that enveloped the mountains. Claudian, a sort of avatar of Lucan, dominates the fourth century with the terrible clarion of his verses, a poet forging a loud and sonorous hexameter striking the epithet with a sharp blow amid sheaves of sparks achieving a certain grandeur which fills his work with a powerful breath in the occidental empire tottering more and more in the perpetual menace of the barbarians now pressing in hordes at the empire's yielding gates he revives antiquity sings of the abduction of proserpine lays on his vibrant colours and passes with all his torches alight into the obscurity that was then engulfing his world paganism again lives in his verse sounding its last fanfare lifting its last great poet above the christianity which was soon entirely to submerge the language and which would forever be sole master of art the new christian spirit arose with paulinus disciple of ausonius euvencus who paraphrases the gospels in verse victorinus author of the maccabees sanctus burdigalensis who in an eclogue imitated from virgil makes his shepherds Aegon and buculus lament the maladies of their flock and all the saints hilaire of poitiers defender of the Nicene faith the athanasius of the occident as he has been called ambrosius author of the indigestible homilies the wearisome christian cicero damasus maker of lapidary epigrams jerome translator of the vulgate and his adversary vigilantius who attacks the cult of saints and the abuse of miracles and fastings and already preaches with arguments which future ages were to repeat against the monastic vows and celibacy of the priests Finally, in the fifth century came Augustine, Bishop of Hippo. Saint knew him only too well, for he was the church's most reputed writer, founder of Christian orthodoxy, considered an oracle and sovereign master by Catholics. He no longer opened the pages of this holy man's works although he had sung his disgust of the earth in the confessions and although his lamenting piety had essayed in the city of god to mitigate the frightful distress of the times by sedative promises of a rosier future when des esseintes had studied theology he was already sick and weary of the old monks preachings and jeremiads his theories on predestination and grace his combats against the schisms he preferred to some the psychomachia of prudentius that first type of the allegorical poem which was later in the middle ages to be used continually and the works of sidonius apollinaris whose correspondence interlarded with flashes of wit pungencies archaisms and enigmas allured him he willingly re-read the panegyrics in which this bishop invokes pagan deities in substantiation of his vainglorious eulogies and in spite of everything he confessed a weakness for the affectations of these verses fabricated as it were by an ingenious mechanician who operates his machine oils his wheels and invents intricate and useless parts after sidonius he sought merobaudes the panegyrist sedulius author of the rhymed poems and abecedarian hymns certain passages of which the church has appropriated for its services marius victorius whose gloomy treatise on the perversity of the times is illumined here and there with verses that gleam with phosphorescence, Paulinus of Pella, poet of the shivering Eucharisticon, and Orientius, bishop of Osh, who in the distics of his monitories inveighs against the licentiousness of women, whose faces, he claims, corrupt the people the interest which des esseintes felt for the latin language did not pause at this period which found it drooping thoroughly putrid losing its members and dropping its pus and barely preserving through all the corruption of its body those still firm elements which the christians detached to marinate in the brine of their new language the second half of the fifth century had arrived the horrible epoch when frightful motions convulsed the earth the barbarians sacked gaul paralysed rome pillaged by the visigoths felt its life grow feeble perceived its extremities the occident and the orient writhe in blood and grow more exhausted from day to day in this general dissolution in the successive assassination of the caesars in the turmoil of carnage from one end of europe to another there resounded a terrible shout of triumph stifling all clamours silencing all voices on the banks of the danube thousands of men astride on small horses clad in rat-skin coats, monstrous tartars, with enormous heads, flat noses, chins gullied with scars and gashes, and jaundiced faces bare of hair, rushed at full speed to envelop the territories of the lower empire like a whirlwind. Everything disappeared in the dust of their gallopings, in the smoke of the conflagrations, darkness fell and the amazed people trembled as they heard the fearful tornado which passed with thunder crashes the hordes of huns raised europe rushed towards gaul overran the plains of chalons where aetius pillaged it in an awful charge the plains gorged with blood foamed like a purple sea two hundred thousand corpses barred the way broke the movement of this avalanche which swerving fell with mighty thunderclaps against italy whose exterminated towns flamed like burning bricks the occidental empire crumbled beneath the shock the moribund life which it was pursuing to imbecility and foulness was extinguished. For another reason the end of the universe seemed near. Such cities as had been forgotten by Attila were decimated by famine and plague. The Latin language in its turn seemed to sink under the world's ruins. Years hastened on. The barbarian idioms began to be modulated, to leave their vein-stones and form real languages. Latin, saved in the debacle by the cloisters, was confined in its usage to the convents and monasteries. Here and there some poets gleamed dully and coldly, the African Dracontius with his hexameron, claudius memertius with his liturgical poetry avitus of vienne then the biographers like enodius who narrates the prodigies of that perspicacious and venerated diplomat st epiphanius the upright and vigilant pastor or like eugippus who tells of the life of st severin that mysterious hermit and humble ascetic who appeared like an angel of grace to the distressed people, mad with suffering and fear. Writers like Ferranius of Gervaudin, who prepared a little treatise on continents. Like Aurelianus and Ferreolus, who compiled the ecclesiastical canons. Historians like Rotherius, famous for a lost history of the Huns des library did not contain many works of the centuries immediately succeeding notwithstanding this deficiency the sixth century was represented by fortunatus bishop of poitiers whose hymns and vexila regis carved out of the old carrion of the latin language and spiced with the aromatics of the church haunted him on certain days by Boethius, Gregory of Tours, and Hernandes, In the 7th and 8th centuries, since, in addition to the low Latin of the chroniclers, the Fredegers and Paul diacres and the poems contained in the Bangor antiphonary, which he sometimes read for the alphabetical and monorhymed hymn sung in honour of St. Comgill the literature limited itself almost exclusively to biographies of saints to the legend of saint columban written by the monk jonas and to that of the blessed cuspert written by the venerable bede from the notes of an anonymous monk of lindisfarne he contented himself with glancing over in his moments of tedium the works of these hagiographers and in again reading several extracts from the lives of st rusticula and st radigonda related the one by defensorius the other by the modest and ingenious baudonivia a nun of poitiers but the singular works of latin and anglo-saxon literature allured him still further they included the whole series of riddles by Adhelm, Tatwine, and Eusebius, who were descendants of Symphosius, and especially the enigmas composed by Saint Boniface in acrostic strophes whose solution could be found in the initial letters of the verses. His interest diminished with the end of those two centuries. Hardly pleased with the cumbersome mass of Carlo-Vingian Latinists, the Alquins and the Aginharts, he contented himself, as a specimen of the language of the ninth century, with the chronicles of St. Gall, Freculfius and Regino, with the poem of the Siege of Paris, written by Abbe lecourbe with the didactic Ortulus of the Benedictine Valafrit Strabo, whose chapter consecrated to the glory of the gourd as a symbol of fruitfulness enlivened him with the poem in which Ermolt the dark celebrating the exploits of louis the debonair a poem written in regular hexameters in an austere almost forbidding style and in a latin of iron dipped in monastic waters with straws of sentiment here and there in the unpliant metal with the de viribus erbarum the poem of macer floridus who particularly delighted him because of his poetic recipes and the very strange virtues which he ascribes to certain plants and flowers, to the Aristolochia, for example, which, mixed with the flesh of a cow and placed on the lower part of a pregnant woman's abdomen, ensures the birth of a male child, or to the borage, which, when brewed into an infusion in a dining-room, diverts guests, or to the peony, Whose powdered roots cure epilepsy, or to the fennel, which, if placed on a woman's breasts, clears her water and stimulates the indolence of her periods. Apart from several special, unclassified volumes, modern or dateless, certain works on the Kabbalah, medicine and botany, Certain odd tomes containing undiscoverable Christian poetry, and the anthology of the minor Latin poets of Wernsdorf, apart from Meursius, the manual of classical erotology of Vorberg, and the diaconals used by confessors, which he dusted at rare intervals, his Latin library ended at the beginning of the tenth century. And, in fact, the curiosity, the complicated naivete of the Christian language had also founded. The balderdash of philosophers and scholars, the logomachy of the Middle Ages, thenceforth held absolute sway. The sooty mass of chronicles and historical books and cartularies accumulated and the stammering grace the often exquisite awkwardness of the monks placing the poetic remains of antiquity in a ragout were dead the fabrications of verbs and purified essences of substantives breathing of incense of bizarre adjectives coarsely carved from gold With the barbarous and charming taste of Gothic jewels, were destroyed. The old editions beloved by Desesseintes here ended, and with a formidable leap of centuries, the books on his shelves went straight to the French language of the present century. End of chapter 4 Recording by Martin Geeson in Hazelmead, Surrey.